All right, everyone, good afternoon, 12.30. Hope you got enough to eat. There's a little bit left over if you want some seconds. But we need to go ahead and get started. We're picking back up in Judges in the Gideon narrative. Gideon spans 6, 7, and 8, and uh, one of the longer um, judge accounts. And as we saw last week, Gideon started off as anything but a mighty warrior which is that's how he was greeted by God, mighty warrior. And he was not. He was hiding, uh, doing menial labor, because the whole land had been overrun for seven years, all their grain had been stolen. And so he has the encounter with God, and God tells him he's going to deliver Israel. He doesn't quite believe God, uh, so he asks for two signs. And God condescends and actually gives him two signs. And, and it's important to note that because these were extraordinary times in Israel. So it's not like people went around asking for signs from God and he just obliged all the time. In fact, Scripture warns against testing the Lord. And it's not a wise thing to do when you already know what God has said to ask for a sign. But we also know that God is also a God of compassion and He knows circumstances and He knows what we need. So some people do need a little bit of extra oomph in following God's will. But He wasn't discerning what God's will was. God had already told Him what His will was. He was just giving Him some reassurance. And that's what Gideon asked for. And God's going to continue that in this chapter because things get crazier. At the end of chapter 6, we saw that the Midianites, Malachites, and Eastern people, so this swarm of Bedouin raiders had come across the Jordan into the Jezreel Valley, into Israel's breadbasket, and was camped out ready to, like locusts, devour the land. And this is what Israel faced every year. And so God told Gideon, I'm going to save Israel by my hand. Um, and he reassured him. And that's where we ended in chapter 6 with the whole fleece reassurance. Chapter 7, we pick up, it says, Early in the morning, Yerubal, that is Gideon, remember he has two names, and most scholars actually think his real name was Jerubal, and Gideon was his nickname, because Gideon means hacker or hewer or one who chops something down, which is what he did to his father's pagan idols. <clears throat> so a number of scholars think that Gideon is actually kind of his nickname and that he was actually born Jeroboam. And he's later referred to in other lists and other books of the Bible. Whenever he's referred to, he's almost never referred to as Gideon in the Old Testament, but Jeroboam. In the New Testament, he was referred to as Gideon. Regardless, early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harad. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that their own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave NIV says Mount Gilead, and here we introduce the first problem. Mount Gilead is not anywhere near where Gideon is. Not all translations say Mount Gilead. Some translations say, um, leave the mountain near Galud, which is uh, a spring nearby, and that would make more sense. Others say Mount Gilboa, and they think Gilead was a, a, a scribal error. 
And others say, no, it's actually supposed to read Mount Gideon, as in Gideon's Mountain, like where we are right now. Either way, the NIV's reading of Mount uh, Gilead is probably not the original Hebrew, and other versions have noted this. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, I point it out, not because it makes a huge interpretive difference, but because there are people who nitpick and look for contradictions in the Bible all the time, and it's important whenever we come across those, you may just never ever hear this again, but I guarantee you somebody somewhere is saying, well, you can't trust the Bible because, and then they'll point to things like this. So just know that not everything you read in an English translation is always the exact reading, and that's why I try to preach or teach from the Hebrew text and mention other translations as they're applicable. So check that out if you're interested in it. But he says, uh, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave from this place. And he actually uses the word may fly from here. In other words, you are free to run away. This is important because the force that they are up against, this is, this is you know, 30,000 or 30 elephs, 30 clans, 30 regiments, versus 120,000, 140,000, 140 regiments, whatever, a large, large number of these eastern peoples. And so... The first thing Gideon, God says is tell Gideon, hey, tell anybody who doesn't want to do this to leave. Terrible advice in the military, right? This is where you'd expect Gideon to have half of his face painted blue and to ride up on a horse and say, sons of Israel, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. If you don't get that reference, go watch Braveheart. Do yourself a favor. Uh, it's one of the best movies ever. But you're expecting a Braveheart scene, a rallying cry. Um, you know, Aragorn rallying the troops to charge into Mordor at the very end of the book. Uh, whatever, that's what you're expecting. And God says, nope, because if they do this, if they win this battle in their own strength, I know Israel, and they're going to assume they won this battle in their own strength. And there's no way they can do that, and I don't want them to do that. Because I, God is wanting to get the glory, because the entire point of this is to get Israel to realize, hey, we need to go back to the covenant. We need to keep the covenant again because God is our protector under the covenant. And if we're living in obedience to the covenant with Him, He takes care of all of our enemies and all of our crops and all of our fertility. That was the promise of Deuteronomy. That was the covenant. That was the contract that they entered into. And so they've broken it time and time again. And so God's trying to get them to go back to that. So, of course, He doesn't want them to have any notion that they're doing this on their own strength. So, he tells Gideon, tell him to leave. So, 22 Aleph, or 22,000, however you interpret that, men left, while 10 Aleph, 10,000 remained. So, two-thirds of the army, gone. Now, Gideon was nervous before. You can imagine his nerves spiking at this point. He's just lost two-thirds of his army. God's not done yet. The Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water. I'll sift them there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water where the Lord told him. Now, here is another part. Translations disagree on who is doing what, and there's some logistical confusion about this test. I'll just read you what the NIV says. The Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped, 
with their hands to their mouths, all the rest got down on their knees to drink. It's a confusing image. How do you lap the water without getting down on your knees? Right? And, and um, to make it even more confusing, the Hebrew text, the phrase, with their hands to their mouths, is attached to the men who lapped. But dogs don't lap with their hands to their mouths. They stick their face in the water and they drink. So there's a number of commentators have handled this like five different ways. I was looking through the different commentaries. And because of the wording, the wording is, the, the syntax is odd. So you can basically have a few different scenarios. You can have some men who went and just belly down, put the face in the water and drank because they were thirsty. Others knelt down, kept an eye out, looked around, scooped water with their hands, and lapped it out of their hands. So the lapping like a dog wouldn't be what we think of as how a dog drinks, which is face down in the water. It would be scooping it up, and the actual drinking this way would be the lapping motion. It's a little confusing in English, because we kind of think the other way. Um, there's different ways it's been addressed, and, and I, I, I just went down a rabbit hole uh, the last two days looking at this one verse because it is presented differently in different translations. Again, does it make a big difference? No. But we always want to have a clear picture of what's going on. And people have preached on this. They're, they've said, well, the people who just jump down and put their face in the water, they're showing that they aren't alert. So you want to get rid of them. Maybe, but as we're going to see, the alertness has nothing to do with the battle. God's not sifting for good soldiers because there's not going to be any fighting. So it's immaterial on whether lapping the water with your, with your hands and like a dog or sticking your face down and drinking. There's no objective way to tell which of those is better. There are just two ways to drink water when you're thirsty and you don't have a cup, basically. The whole point of the test is in its arbitrariness. God's trying to get the least number of people. So the ones who kneel down, I mean the ones who uh, scoop the water with their hands, you know, they're in the minority. And, and like, you know, the nine, uh, whatever, 300 minus 10,000, you know, 9,700 uh, people, whoever, that's the majority. They're doing it the normal way. And so the people who do it the weird way whether that's face down or whether that's scooping it up, whoever, the ones that are doing it the weird way, that's the ones that God says, keep them. The rest of them, send them back. And so, 300 men lapped with their hands, all the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets from the others. So all of the gear and everything. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So God knows the type of character Gideon is. He knows he's completely removed his entire army. He had 30,000 people the beginning, or 30 elephs, however many that is. Now he has 300. It's not a lot of people. Um, you could probably fit 300 people in this room. 
if you really packed it in, like that whole side and this side. I mean, it's not a, it's not a huge number. And so God gives him some reassurance. This is a beautiful image of God condescending again, but this time Gideon's not the one asking. God anticipates. It's like, it's like God understands that Gideon would be fearful because he'd just taken his army away from him. Sometimes we think that God doesn't know what we're thinking, which is ridiculous. You know, sometimes we think God doesn't know what our fears are. Sometimes we want to put on a brave face. We think when we pray, we have to pray in a censored way or an edited way. He already knows. He knows it more than we do. He knew Gideon was afraid more than Gideon knew. And so he preemptively gives him this sign. It's a really cool picture of God's grace. And it's such a specific sign, too. He says, uh, So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. It's a, that stock Hebrew phrase that describes armies and descendants and peoples is sand on the seashore. There's another reason why we don't take the Bible literally all the time. We take it literarily. Because there were not as many camels as there are grains of sand on the seashore. That should go without saying. Um, so that lets us know that the Hebrew Bible uses what we call figures of speech and exaggeration. And that's not downplaying the Bible to say the Bible authors exaggerated. That's just because they were good authors. And good authors exaggerate to make a rhetorical point. So the people they see were vast. They were numerous. They were like locusts that swarm in. And we talked last week about the devastation that locusts reap. So they see, they go down, he and his servant, he and Pura, and um, verse 13, Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. Ha, coincidence. Just happened to arrive when a man was telling his friend his dream out loud. <clears throat> I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. Well, that's his dream, a round loaf of barley. Um, so barley is, is not good bread. Barley was about worth half as much as wheat. And so barley was, was uh, you know, in the pantheon of breads. It was near the bottom. And it was what you would eat when you didn't have the good stuff. So think the opposite of Pillsbury Crescent Rolls or Krispy Kreme donuts, because those are obviously the pinnacle of all breads. Um, so the, the, the bottom, think down low, this round barley cake, and it comes tumbling into the camp, knocks over the tent, and it's destroyed. It's a weird image. His friend responded, verse 14, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. What? How in the world did his friend say this could be nothing other than Gideon has nothing to do with bread other than he was threshing wheat when we first met him. And a rolling thing of bread rolling into a tent, why wouldn't they assume that that's them, the Midianites, rolling through Israel and destroying Israel? See, this shows the nature. Dreams, you you can't 
There's no formula for interpreting dreams. In the Bible, dreams don't make sense. The only interpreter who can rightfully interpret dreams in the Bible is God. And if God gives someone an interpretation that's correct, then that's the correct interpretation. But there's no way to repeat that. There's no way you'd get, get this, this represents Gideon from a dream about a piece of dough rolling, a piece of barley cake rolling and knocking a tent over. There's no way you would get that. Just like there's no way you would get Egypt is going to have a famine if you have a dream of seven skinny cows coming out of the Nile and eating seven fat cows. That doesn't make any sense. How is that, you know, like, and that's the point, is in the Bible, dreams belong only to God. And I only say this because sometimes you'll hear well-meaning Christians that get a little too wrapped up in the charismatic aspects of Christianity, the exciting stuff and sometimes the spooky stuff. Um, you, you know, there's some people that are just a little too fascinated with things like demons and angels and dreams. Uh, way more than the Bible devotes energy to those things. It's not like those things don't exist. It's not like dreams aren't real. It's not like prophecy's not real. There's some churches that teach prophecy ceased, but uh, I love them, but they're wrong. Um, it continues, and dreams continue, and, and the, the gifts of the Spirit, there's nothing that says they don't happen anymore. But you know, sometimes we've all met people, it's just really exciting to hear them go on about these dreams and visions that they have. And some of those people, even well-meaning, write books or maybe teach seminars or do classes on how you can interpret dreams. And they give rules about, well, this is what this symbolizes in a dream, and this is what this symbolizes. But when you read the dreams in the Bible, none of those rules apply. Those, those rules are never helpful. And I had a friend back in college, he said, look, if the Bible can represent Jesus and Satan as a snake, which it does, as well as a lion, which it does, both Jesus and Satan are represented by a serpent and by a lion at different points in Scripture, then there is no way you can assign any meaning to anything and have it be objective across the board. It has to come from God. The interpretation will have to come from God. And it'll have to be supernatural. And that's what it is here in this section. This interpretation is a supernatural interpretation. And the funny thing is, is it's by a pagan. It's by a pagan enemy. Once again, God is speaking His truth or revealing His truth through an unexpected source. And this should be familiar by now because He's been doing it all through the book. And so he's giving Gideon this, this, this final reassurance. And the funny thing about Gideon is God telling him you're going to win this battle, he was still scared. Now when he hears it from a pagan person, from an enemy, now all of a sudden Gideon gets brave. It's, it, it's sadly ironic that it took him hearing it from an enemy to finally believe it rather than hearing it from the living God. And Gideon's downfall is going to start in this chapter. And you're going to notice a tiny little... It's, it's subtle at first, because he's still going to do some good stuff, but you're going to start to see the cracks forming in the edifice that's going to unfold in the next chapter. Because after the friend responded, verse 15, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. Literally, he bowed down to the Lord. He returned to camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into, our, into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. 
So each one's got a torch, each one's got a clay pot. The torch was probably a, a stick with an oil-soaked rag wrapped around it, or a bundle of, um, uh, of, of grass or hay or something tightly wound, soaked in some type of oil and lit. So the idea was, you know, if you, if you put it in a jar, it's smoldering, it's not really burning, but as soon as you pull it out, break the jar, then the flame, it comes to life. So ancient lantern type technology. But he gave each of them uh, the 300, divided them into three companies, each of 100, placed the trumpets empty jars in the hands of all of them. Watch me, he told them, follow my lead. See, Gideon's brave now. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our shofars, our trumpets, those are ram's horns, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Uh-oh, that wasn't part of the plan. This battle was never supposed to be Gideon's battle. Now, it's ambiguous at this point because God's called him a mighty warrior and he is God's general, so to speak. So it's not like flat out wrong, but it's very uncharacteristic of Gideon who is hiding in a wine press and asking for sign after sign after sign. Now, all of a sudden, he's rallying the people around God, but also around him as well. It's just a little unsettling as we're reading it or out of character for Gideon so Gideon and the hundred men with him because he had a hundred and there were another hundred another hundred reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch that's midnight just after they had changed the guards everybody's sleepy and confused and there's a little bit of uh that's when you want to attack they blew their shofars and broke the jars that were in their hands the three companies blew the shofars and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. The irony is there's no sword involved. <laughs> there's, there's not a sword in this whole thing. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. So that's the irony, is the sword of Gideon was actually the sword of the Amalekites and the eastern peoples. And, and in this camp, think about it, they're surrounded, it's midnight, ancient Near East, no street lights, no lanterns, none of that. It's pitch dark. All of a sudden, on each side, all three sides, Torches light up, and these crashing sounds of these clay pots being broken, and this blowing of the horns. And so you can imagine, okay, if they and they see, you know, the 300 or so torches all flare up all at once, which is a pretty impressive sight. You can imagine seeing that, think, oh my gosh, if these are just the heralds, if these are just the signalers, how vast must the army that's charging at us be if these are the ones who are standing back giving light? And so you see that, that the, the panic that ensues among the Amalekites, because remember, these are a coalition of Eastern peoples. These are Midianites. These are Amalekites. These are Eastern peoples. So they're not even all of the same group. We don't even know if they all spoke the same language, or at least not as a native language. And so there's some confusion. It's pitch black, and you hear the shouting, and, and, and the people start turning on each other. Oh, there's stabbing. Oh, there's somebody, you know, there's fighting, and it's just bedlam. It's bedlam. But Gideon and the troops are doing what? They're just standing around the edge. 
Just like at Jericho, all they did when they crossed in, all Joshua did was march around the city, and then it fell. And, and that's the point of this whole thing, is this, the battle is the battle of the Lord. Gideon doesn't do anything but yell and break a pot. I mean, that's literally all he does, and he blows a horn. And everybody else does the same thing. So it's overwhelming evidence that God is the victor. That this is God's victory. It's supernatural. So, uh, middle of verse 22. The army fled to Beth Shittas towards Zerah as far as the border of Abel Melah near Tabah. These are place names that are kind of in middle Israel going down towards the Jordan Valley. Gideon sent, uh, sorry, verse 23, Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. So now that the army's been routed and they're fleeing, now the Israelites are called out from the different tribes that are in those regions to kind of converge and drive them back down and eventually across the Jordan River. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. In other words, block off their escape route so they cannot flee back across the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they took the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Raven and Wolf. That's what those names mean. Oreb and Zeb don't sound nearly as intimidating but their names mean Raven and Wolf, two of the commanders of these marauding eastern warriors. So they killed Raven at the Rock of Raven and Wolf at the winepress of Wolf. They're called that because that's where they killed them. They pursued the Midianites and they brought the heads of Raven and Wolf to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. So a complete routing after God wins the battle, then Israel comes in, just like Jericho. After God brought down the walls, then Israel went in and mopped up. Well, it's the same thing here. So this battle that should not have been won, if, if you take the number Eliph as thousand, it's 140-something thousand troops against 300 guys with no weapons, and then the rest of the Israelites that numbered 20,000, 30,000, something like that. Um, it's just in all ways it's a rout, and it completely crushes this marauding band of raiders that had been coming for seven years and pillaging Israel and all their grain. So it's an overwhelming victory that God gives Gideon. But things aren't going to be smooth sailing. We're going to see Gideon go from mighty man of God, who's scared but has potential, to uh, what he was in this chapter, which is a decisive commander giving orders in the next chapter, he's going to start to walk that line between being faithful to God and believing your own hype. And that's going to introduce a lot of problems into Israel. And we're going to see what happens next week because this is a high point. This should be like a Deborah Barak JL moment. And we're going to get a, a look into the state of Israel next week when we see the aftermath of this battle. Um, but anyway, we're out of time this week. So we'll pick up Gideon part three next week. We'll be in chapter eight. And until then, everybody have a great week.